John 1, 35 to 51. Hear the word of our Lord. On the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. On the next day, he desired to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said about him, Behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, From where do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of our Lord. Father, we do come before you as a church body that calls upon the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Lord, we come in so many ways realizing how unworthy we are to approach you. Lord, we really thought we'd be so much further along in our walk with you than what we actually are. And you see us, Lord, and you know right where we are. And you still... You still beckon us to come and to draw near to you in the name of Christ. So, Father, we do that. And uh, pleading nothing of our own, nothing in our own merit, but pleading only the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, for his sake, I pray this morning that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would bless the hearing of your word preached. And Father, that you would work in each one of our hearts change that is needed 
so that we might bear fruit with the gospel unto the days of eternity. We long for that day, Lord Jesus, when you will return and you will make all things new, Lord, including us who are hoping in you. As these bodies break down, we long for that day more and more. As our mental capacity slips, degrades, we long for that day more when we will think rightly and fully about you. Or as our emotional capacity wanes under the pressure of the world and the darkness around us, Lord, we long for that day when we will dwell with you in a new heaven and a new earth and a place where righteousness, a place where righteousness dwells and where only those who are made righteous through our Lord Jesus Christ will live. Until then, Lord, we pray you would sustain our weary souls with the word. That you would speak skillfully to each one of our hearts. That your spirit would apply your word exactly as we need it applied. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Amen. Anyone else amen that? That... We just thought we'd be so much further along than we are. And uh, when I thought about where I would be after walking with the Lord for 18 years, I, I thought I would be more mature than I am. I thought I would know him more than I do. Well, my whining up here about my state isn't going to help you any, so... Let's get our eyes on Christ, our helper. Last week I said that in this passage of Scripture we find something very significant about what it means not only to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, but what it means to remain as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What I said was that true discipleship requires personal acquaintance with Jesus. That is, it requires a true and genuine and living relationship with the Lord. And as I said last week, the only way that we're going to get that is if you and I actually come to Christ and actually see him with the eyes of our own hearts. There's no substitute for that. There's nothing that will satisfy the heart or equip the soul to run down Jesus and to live life after him, following in his footsteps, there's nothing that's going to equip us to do that than seeing Christ for ourselves and being impressed by his glory. None of us can coast to heaven on the coattails of someone else's experience with Christ. I said that last week and I want to say it again. You cannot coast to heaven because someone else whom you know knows Jesus. You have to know him and you have to see him if you're going to follow him. We cannot hope in Christ as the glorious one unless in our own hearts we actually experience Christ as being the glorious one. We cannot trust in his power to save unless we have seen and experienced that power in our own lives. 
So as Jonathan Edwards rightly observed in his book, Religious Affections, if you have not read the book, Religious Affections, here's another one that I'm going to rebuke you over. If you haven't read, you need to read this book. I'm, not, I'm just kidding about the rebuke, but you need to read this book. Jonathan Edwards rightly observed in Religious Affections that nothing is more clear, he uses the word manifest, nothing is more clear, in fact, than that the things of religion take hold of men's souls no further than they actually affect them. That is, the realities of Christ and the things related to living life after Christ take hold of a person's heart in no greater measure then they are actually affected by those things. In other words, then they actually experience those things. Now, when we speak of experience, especially in our own day, we need to make sure that we always distinguish what we mean from what is often meant by sex and cults in the world. Most often when people think about experiential Christianity, if I threw that phrase out among people from the world, most often they would think of mere emotionalism or they might think of ecstatic experiences that places like Bethel Church Reading would hold up as the work of the Holy Spirit or places like IHOP, not the pancake place, but the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. These ecstatic experiences that they would claim as being true movements of the Holy Spirit, that, you know, convulsing, falling down on your back, grave sucking, leg lengthening, (laughs) things like that. None of that is what we are talking about whenever we are talking about the need to experience the reality of Christ. If you have any question about what grave sucking is, I'd be happy to talk with you afterward. But yeah, don't set your mind on that kind of stuff. It's just, it's witchcraft, it's sorcery, it's demonic. And it's being heralded as something that ought to be done in the name of Jesus by these places. And and we need to to stiff arm that hard. But, But that's not what we mean or what the scriptures are talking about whenever... Uh, they are affirming the need to have an experiential relationship with Christ. Experiential Christianity, the kind of experiential Christianity that we see in Scripture, is not Christian experience that is derived from or driven by our own emotions or imaginations. We're not talking about experiencing the realities of Christianity simply because we drum up emotion that makes us feel something. Like what happens so often at different conferences and and camps. You go and you get this spiritual high and you're renewed seemingly and you come back with all these resolutions and within a couple weeks they all fall flat on their face. Why is that? Because the experience you had at that place was not genuine. It was emotionalism. It was hype. It wasn't a true move of the Spirit. A truly experiential walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is one that is governed and defined and driven by God's word. I thought A.W. Pink described this in a very helpful way in his commentary on John. It's kind of a long quote, but I have it up here on the screen so that you can follow with me as I read it. As I read it. In this quote, he's referring to the experience that these first disciples Uh, had when they first came to realize that Jesus was the Messiah. He's 
He's deriving these statements from what he sees here in John chapter 1. And he says, how often this experience of the disciples here in John 1, how often this experience has been duplicated. That is, duplicated in principle, we mean. Not that we have the exact same experience that these disciples have, but in the principle of coming to know Jesus Christ as Messiah for ourselves, how often has that happened, he says. And then he gives examples of what he means. He says, how many of us, now listen to this, because this offers a lot of clarity about what we're talking about when we're discussing experientialism within Christianity. How many of us used to hear Christ spoken of by others while as yet we had no personal knowledge of him ourselves? We sat under a preacher who magnified his excellencies. We heard men and women singing, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. And we were impressed by the testimonies of God's saints as they bore witness to that friend who sticketh closer than a brother. As we listened, our hearts yearned for a similar experience, but as yet we ourselves had no personal acquaintance with him. When one day, perhaps we were waiting on the ministry of one of God's servants, or maybe we were alone in our room reading a portion of the scriptures, or perhaps down on our knees crying to God to reveal his son to us, or possibly we were attending to the daily round of duty, when suddenly he who until then had been only a name was revealed to us by God as a living reality. Do you hear that? Then we could say with one of old, of Job, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about experiential Christianity. Something that goes beyond a mere mental conception of the truth of Christ or a mere notional acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and drills down into the heart. Where you not only confess because you mentally know he's Lord, you feel the weight of that bearing in upon your soul. That's the kind of experience we're talking about. Where the Holy Spirit takes the truth about Christ that is preserved for us in God's word and then opens the eyes of our hearts so that we see it. So that we feel it. So that we know it. So that we walk in its reality as if it's the most real thing we've ever come to know in this life. Do you remember when that happened for you? Maybe it hasn't happened for you. And you ought to cry out to God until it does. Until you know Christ in that manner. But those of you who know what it's like to be pressed in with the reality of Christ, you know the power that comes from finally coming to the point where you can say, I know him, and more than that, I know that he knows me. I used to only know of him in name. I used to only know of what I heard other people talk about him, but now my own eyes, the own eyes of my heart see him. And I'm walking with him. That's necessary for true discipleship. You know, we, we, we lament so much the spiritual poverty that's in our churches. 
And we, we come up with all kinds of various solutions and reasons why we are the way we are and we're in the state we're in. It's because of the world. It's because we don't have this or that method or program. That has nothing to do with it. It all comes down to this. Are we a people who know our God and then take a stand? Or are we a people who are still questioning in our hearts whether Jesus really is Lord? I promise you, when your heart is convicted of the Lordship of Christ and the sovereignty of God and the glory of His name, you will have no problem taking a stand in your office place for the sake of His truth out of fear of losing your job, when you might lose your job. When the reality of Christ's Lordship hits you the way that it ought to in the Scriptures, then the church will actually start to look like the church looked in Acts chapter 2. And three and four. There's no substitute for this, and there's no shortcuts. This is what we seek. Anyway, that's not the sermon for today, but I felt like I needed to clarify what we're talking about whenever we're talking about Christian experience. Now, in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, we see this reality of experiential Christianity being worked out in the lives of five of Christ's first disciples. Again, only four of them are mentioned by name. We have Andrew, we have Simon Peter, we have Philip, and then we have Nathaniel. And John's point in this passage is not merely to convey to us these historical, or excuse me, not merely, blah, 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 get that out. John's point in this section is not merely to convey to us these historical realities as things that happened. That's part of it. But he's also setting before us in these disciples the pattern of how anyone comes to be a disciple of Christ. If we would see the glory of Christ and have saving faith in him, then just like these disciples, we too must come and see him for ourselves. So unto that end, this morning, I want to continue looking at how these men became disciples of Jesus Christ. And I want to draw from their experiences important lessons on discipleship for you and me to take to heart. Now, once again, your outlines are wrong. The bottom section on Nathaniel, we're going to save that for next week. And we'll come back and discuss him more fully. Today, we're just going to consider two of these disciples. And that'll be Peter and Philip. So we're going to look at two of the disciples. And then I've got two rounds of application. One coming from each of them. Next week, we'll come back and look at Nathaniel. So let's look together at the third disciple, Simon Peter. Last week, we ended looking at the evangelistic zeal of Andrew, right? What happened after he came to the conviction that Christ, that Jesus truly was the Messiah? He immediately went out, and John 1.41 says he went to tell his brother Simon about it. And after he found Simon, John 1.42 says he told him, or excuse me, he brought him, brought Simon to Jesus. You might call that an aggressive form of evangelism. He brought him to Jesus. He didn't merely invite him to Jesus. Very interesting. Now, how had Andrew become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, by spending time with him. And Andrew knew that the only way for his brother Simon to become convinced was for Simon to come and spend time with Jesus too. And that is the common theme 
that's running through this section. Peter had to come and see Jesus himself. So it says, Andrew brought him to Jesus. Now when they arrived, John 1.42 tells us that Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, surprisingly, at least to me, it was surprising that this is all it says about the first interaction between Jesus and Peter. You would think that someone as important as Peter would have more details included about how he came to be a follower of Christ and, and greater details about the discussion that he and Jesus had. However, the Apostle John is very obviously directing our attention to what happened in that first moment when Jesus spoke to Simon for a reason. He's emphasizing that from the start of their relationship, Jesus purposefully and intentionally gave Simon a new name. A name that would redefine him from that point forward. Now you notice in this verse, Jesus first identifies who Simon is. He says, you are Simon. Jesus knew exactly who he was dealing with whenever Simon was brought by Andrew to Jesus. But then Jesus declares not only who Simon is, but he declares who Simon would be. Or maybe we might say what Simon would be. He said, you are Simon, you will be called Cephas or Peter. Both of those names simply mean rock. One is an Aramaic word, Cephas. The other is a Greek word, Petros or Peter. Now clearly we see Jesus, what Jesus is doing here in this statement. He's drawing a contrast between who Simon is in himself and who Simon would become in Christ. You see that? Jesus is making this contrast between who Simon is as he approaches Jesus and who Simon will become as he follows Jesus. Well, who was Simon when he approached Jesus? In Scripture, we see many things about Simon, many things that carried with him even after he initially came to the Lord Jesus and became a disciple. We see in Scripture that Simon in himself was impulsive. We see that Simon was prideful. We see that Simon was brash. And yet we also see that Simon in himself, despite his pride, was cowardly. We see that Simon was vacillating. We see that Simon was unstable. At times, he was full of great ambition, but he lacked the drive and commitment to carry those ambitions out. Can any of you identify with Simon? Boy, I can. But the name Cephas, or Peter, or Rock, that signifies just the opposite of what Simon was in himself. A rock is not unstable. A rock is stable. A rock is not vacillating. A rock is firm. A rock is faithful. A rock is constant. And really, what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting who Simon is in himself 
with who he would become. And here's what is important, I think, for us to see about that. And where we begin to grasp something about the glorious reality of how Christ sees and interacts with his disciples. Despite what Simon was in and of himself, he was unstable and vacillating as he may have been. Despite what Simon was in himself, that is not primarily how Jesus saw Simon. And you got to get this. If you're going to understand what it means, the great hope you have in being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to recognize what you're seeing here in Jesus' interactions with Simon. No matter what Simon was in and of himself, all his failures, all his doubts, all his fears, his cowardice, his vacillating, all of that stuff that belonged to Simon, that was not primarily what defined how Jesus saw him. In Jesus' eyes, what Simon was in himself was not ultimately what mattered. What mattered was what Simon would become by the grace and power of Christ. There should be an amen on that. That can be louder next time. It's fine. Rather than vacillating and unstable, Jesus says that Simon will be a Cephas. Simon will be a Peter. He will be a rock, stable and firm and dependable and immovable and faithful. And remember, there were many more times of failure that were yet to come in the life of Simon Peter. Just because Jesus called him rock and changed his name at this point does not mean that he was going to act like a rock the rest of his time with Jesus during his earthly ministry. There were many times of failure that were yet to come. And yet, even here at the beginning of Simon Peter's walk with Jesus, Jesus makes clear how he sees Simon. Not primarily in light of who and what he is in himself, but in light of what Christ was going to accomplish in him. And to make that point, Jesus gives Simon a new name. In effect, a new identity that conforms to the way that Jesus viewed him. Viewing Simon with the end in mind, not the present. Now listen. Do you, get, do you get what I'm saying there, what I'm seeing? You see that? You know, we find in Scripture that what Jesus is doing here with Peter, he also does with every single one of his disciples. Follow me. Just as Jesus gave Simon a new name, he does that same thing for you. The meditation verse in the bulletin points that out. If you guys have never noticed, you open the bulletin on the left side, there's a meditation verse on the bottom left. That verse is kind of something that we put there so that you would think about that, pray through that, maybe five minutes before the service starts to help prepare your heart and your mind for the message that's going to be declared that day. When that verse we read, Jesus says to his church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes... To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give I, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Jesus holds this out as a reward to this church and calling them to be faithful. 
to endure, to persevere to the end. And at the end, they would receive this stone from Jesus' own hand with a new name written on it. See, if you're a genuine follower of Christ, then Christ has already given you a new name. Not these old names which are marred by so much sin and guilt and failing, so much weakness, so much faithlessness. That's, that's what marks my name. That's what truly marks the name Seth. Failure, sinner, rejected, untrustworthy. That's me. But Jesus has already given me a new name. A new name that captures and expresses exactly how he sees me through the lens of divine grace. And according to this promise in Revelation 2.17, one day you and I are going to find out what that name is. And it's going to be a name that is exactly tailored to who you are and the way that Jesus Christ views you as his brother, his sister. Beloved, for, for some of us, come with me here for a minute. For some of us, the greatest need we have is to grasp the truth that's revealed here in Jesus' interactions with Peter. Jesus had every reason to look upon Peter in light of his failures. And yet here, rather than looking upon Peter in light of his failures, he gives him a name that reflects the faithfulness and the faithful work that God was going to accomplish in him. Some of us in this room are so consumed by what we have been in the past that it continues to define us in our minds in the present. The shame of our sins and our failures that have haunted us our entire lives still knock at our doors. They still burrow themselves into our thoughts and we can't help but think of ourselves in light of what we used to be, even at times in light of what we are now. And because of that, we think that somehow this is also how Jesus sees us. We see this failing in ourselves. We see ourselves characterized by this kind of cowardice or that kind of faithlessness. How is it that Jesus doesn't see that as well? And right there is where we experience that conflict between holy justice meeting with holy unmerited grace. And we struggle to receive it. We find ourselves unable to accept the fact that when Christ received us as his disciple, he also gave us a new name. And in his eyes, we are no longer defined by the past sins and failures that we used to fall into, but by the glorious work that his grace is and will ultimately accomplish in us. See, when God looks at you, when Jesus Christ looks at you, he does not look at you in light of what you are right now or what you've been in the past. He looks at you in light of the end, the end day, that last day, when he's going to fully conform you to the image of his own glory. Jesus looks upon you right now in light of that day. That's what undergirds this new name that he gives to each one of his disciples. Even from before the beginning of your relationship with Christ, when Jesus looked at you, beloved, he did not primarily see you in light of your failings. He acknowledges those failings. He does. Just like with Simon, he says, you are Simon, and I know who you are. 
He doesn't deny the reality of what we are in ourselves, but He does not define us by what we are in ourselves. He sees you in light of what you will be on the final day when He cleanses you entirely from the ruin of our sinful state and makes us full sharers in His glory. See, when Jesus looks at you, that is what He sees. And he's given you a new name. And in giving you a new name, you know what he has also given you. He's also given you a new identity. If you are in Christ, then you are no longer an enemy, but you are a son or a daughter of the king. If you are in Christ, you are no longer identified as a sinner, but you are called a saint, a holy one. If you are in Christ, then you are no longer called a slave of sin, and of the flesh, and of the devil, but you have been set free in Christ, and you have been enslaved to God by the power of His eternal love. If you are in Christ, then you are no longer the old man, characterized by all the old ways, but you are eternally a new man, being conformed to the image of Christ in true righteousness and holiness. If you are in Christ, then you are beloved. You are not an enemy. If you are in Christ, then you are redeemed. You are not condemned. If you are in Christ, then you are protected. You are not abandoned. If you are in Christ, then you are loved. You are not despised. If you are in Christ, then you are God's delight. You are not His burden. Some of you live as if you're God's burden. You're His delight, he says in Isaiah. If you are in Christ, you are His inheritance. You are not His forfeiture. If you're in Christ, you are His church. You are His household. You are His family. You are His son. You are His daughter. You are a Naomi in Christ. You are not a Mara. Go read the book of Ruth and you'll understand what I mean. If you are in Christ, then you are his Israel. You are not his Jacob. A Jacob. If you are in Christ, then you are like a Peter to the Lord, a rock. You are not like a Simon. And a major part of being a faithful disciple of Christ is spending the rest of your life putting on that new identity that Christ has given you. You're not earning this identity, it's already yours. But you are spending every moment of every day for the rest of your life seeking to live in the fullness of the reality of that identity. Every day, every morning, every night, the fight is to believe that in Christ this actually is what you are. That this really is how he sees you. That this is what defines you in his eyes. And then doing the hard work of actually living in light of that reality. What we see in this interaction with Peter is a simple picture of what Christ is doing in all of our lives. He takes us as we are. He receives us as we are. He acknowledges us as we are. And I'm so thankful for that. 
I don't have to clean myself up in order to come to Jesus. I don't have to go jump through these hoops or become a certain kind of person or be green-lamped and made into a certain kind of mold, pressed into it in the church before I can come to Christ. I come to Christ as I am. That's where that song is right, just as I am. I come to Christ just as I am. But here's what we have to remember. Thank God that he receives us as we are, but the good news of the gospel is that he doesn't leave us as we are. He changes us and he brings us into greater conformity to that final purpose that he has for us, which is to be instruments of his grace that outshine the glory or shine out with the glory of his son. We're not going to outshine Christ's glory. I didn't mean it like that. I just mean we're going to shine out with it. In becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus gave Simon a new name. And beloved, he does that same for you and me. And one day, as we persevere in hope and reach the end when we stand in the presence of his glory, Jesus is going to hand us that stone with that new name carved into it. and You're going to hear Jesus speak that new name over you. All the shame of what you were before is going to roll away. And you'll be fully entirely conformed to what Christ has intended you to become. Such love and glory, who can measure? Who his name will not esteem? The one who calls a sinner his treasure, he who names the filthy clean. That is you, beloved. And discipleship is merely learning to live in that reality and to walk in its fullness and to believe in it by faith. So we see when Peter comes to Jesus, Jesus changes. When Simon comes to Jesus, Jesus changes his name, gives him a new name that characterizes what Jesus had intended for him and how Jesus viewed him. Now, as we come to a close, let's consider the fourth disciple mentioned in this text, which is Philip. John 1.43, we, we read that it was on the next day, that is now the fourth day in this one-week period that's covered from John 1.19 through chapter 2.11. On the next day, when Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, before he left the area of Judea, it says he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Follow me. Now, this is the simple command of discipleship. This little phrase that Jesus speaks to Philip sums up what the Christian life is really all about. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that you follow Jesus. If someone will not follow Jesus, and I mean practically, actually follow Jesus with your life, not just with your heart or your mind, then that person cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Let me point out three things about what we see here from Jesus' interaction with Philip. This will be, two of these will be brief, one will be a little bit longer. First of all, just pay attention. Notice the method that Jesus uses to call Philip. He does not call him through the ministry of another person. For example, he doesn't use John the Baptist to call Philip. That's how he called who we believe is John. That's how he called Andrew, but that's not how he called Philip. Or with Andrew calling Simon Peter, 
Rather, Jesus comes to Philip personally and directly. And Philip becomes the only one of the five disciples mentioned here that was called directly by Christ himself. There's an application to that that we'll get to next week, I believe. Just tuck it in your mind. Pay attention to the method. Number two, notice the intentionality on Jesus' part in calling Philip to be his disciple. With Andrew and the other disciple, Jesus was seemingly going to pass by. Remember, he was walking away and John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples with John heard that and began to follow Jesus. In, that, in their experience of becoming a disciple, it seemed as though they were the ones that had to pursue Jesus in order to be a disciple. And yet here, with Philip, Jesus is the one who sought Philip out in order to make him a disciple. It says he found Philip. That meant he was seeking for him, searching for him. Much like what we see with Jesus and the woman at the well, there's intentionality in Jesus pursuing Philip. Like a lost sheep whom Jesus, as the good shepherd, had to find and needed to save, Jesus sought after Philip and found him. No matter the outward circumstance, or excuse me, no matter the outward differences in how the calling to follow Jesus comes upon us, the reality is that Jesus is the one who is behind all of it. In every presentation of the true gospel in our lives, before we were saved, every moment where thoughts about God and sin and salvation came into our minds before we came to Christ, up until that moment when the call of the gospel broke through and pierced our hearts, it was always and ever Jesus who was the one pursuing us behind all of those means, seeking to bring us into the fold. It's an encouragement to take notice of. But here with Philip, Jesus comes directly to him and calls him, which leads us to a third thing. Something important for us to notice about Philip, and that is his name. I want to notice something about Philip's name. Philip is a Greek name. Does anyone know what the name means? Don't look in your study Bible. It means lover of horses. Lover of horses. There's no point in the sermon to that. I just thought it was interesting. Philip was named by his parents, lover of horses. I think my kids would hate me if I did that. Now, it was common, well, Philip's, Philip's name is Greek. It means lover of horses, but Philip is Jewish. It was common for Jewish people in this time to have two names, a Hebrew name and a Greek name, just because of the society that they lived in. You had your Hebrew society, and then you had your dealings with the world outside of that little society. And in that case, they would use a Greek name in their interactions with them. However, with Philip, we never find Philip being called by a Hebrew name in the scriptures. There are other disciples who are called by both a Greek and a Hebrew name, but we never find that with Philip. In fact, it's the same with Andrew. Andrew is another Greek name, and we never find Andrew being called by a Hebrew name. That's interesting to me for a couple reasons. Number one, because it shows how Hellenized Philip's family was. That is, it shows how much Greek influence there was in his upbringing and in his home life. 
Now, if you don't understand why that's important, remember that during this day, that was something that was very offensive to those who considered themselves to be true and pure Jews of the day. It's intriguing also because what it shows us about those whom Jesus sought to be his disciples is that Jesus was willing to accept and receive those who will accept those to be his disciples, whom those in the broader culture would not. It's intriguing because Jesus doesn't here in this scene scene, simply receive Philip after Philip begged Jesus to tag along as a disciple. Jesus sought Philip out. Jesus came to seek and to save, not the righteous, but, to those, but those who are the lost. Jesus did not come to seek and save those who think they have it all together, or those who are well-respected well in the world, or the powerful and the noble. He came to seek the outcast, the broken, the shattered, the sinner, the ignoble, the weak, and the foolish to be his own. And we see that here in Philip. That's one element that I think is important to keep in our minds. But secondly... I think it's significant that just in, in Philip's name being Greek and Jesus calling Philip to be his disciple, that his Greek name actually proves to be something very important for how Jesus intended to use Philip for the sake of his kingdom. Notice with me John chapter 12 verses 20 through 21. In this section, we learn of some Greeks who had come up to the Passover feast to worship God, and they were wanting to see Jesus. And as these Greeks approached Jesus' disciples to try and see him, which one of the disciples did they approach? In verse 21, it says that these Greeks came to Philip, saying, we want to see Jesus. Well, why did they come to Philip? Well, I don't know for sure, but probably because he was the most Greek, or at least the most Greek-influenced from among the disciples. And these Greeks came to Philip probably because they felt more comfortable approaching him than they did any of the other disciples. And you know what happened next. Philip took these disciples to Andrew, the other Greek-named disciple, and they both brought them to Jesus. Again, I don't want to be guilty of reading too much into this, but I do think that there is a helpful application that can be drawn from this reality. I'm going to end on this. You guys still awake? All right. There are differences among those whom Christ gathers into his church. And those differences are not incidental, nor are they accidental. They are purposeful. Christ has a purpose to use each one of his disciples in light of their unique differences to continue the work of building up his church. And what that means for us is that we should never be ashamed of who Christ has made us to be in his church. Now, I'm not talking about the sinful you. Right? I'm not talking about the B.C. you, the before Christ you. Each of us have elements of the old man, the old woman that still remain with us, of which we ought to be ashamed. 
We ought to be ashamed of those things. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our unique personalities. I'm talking about our unique abilities. And as is the case with Philip, even down to our unique names. Our unique heritage. Our unique upbringing. The things about us that make us who we are. The way that the Lord has worked in our lives from the very beginning. Those things that shape us and mold us and make us into the person that we are. Minus the sin, but the person that we are. That is the person that Christ intends to use in building His church. And He does not expect you to become another person before He will start using you. This may not mean much to you. It means a lot to me. Christ has made each one of us in a certain way. And He has called each one of us to be His disciples because He wants to use us according to our uniqueness. He wants you to be who He has made you to be and not try to be someone else. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10 while he's talking about all these other apostles whom the Lord is using. He says of himself, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is the same for you and me. You might say, well, that's obvious. Of course he wants to use us. Of course we're unique people, distinct, different from one another. You know, we might know that, but I still find that too many believers spend too much of their time and energy seeking to fit in to what they perceive to be the expectations of everyone else around them. Too often I find believers spending too much of their time and energy seeking to fit in to what they perceive to be the expectations and standards of others who are within the church. And as a result of that, we find the effect is detrimental. It's detrimental to the health of the body. It's detrimental to our ability to advance the kingdom of Christ in this world. Creativity among the people of Christ is stifled. Our experience of biblical freedom and our relationship with Christ is halted. And the unique manner in which Christ intends to use someone to build up and bless his people is undermined. All because we're trying to make someone else fit into a mold that we have for them. Or we are trying to fit ourselves into the mold that we think everyone everyone else has for us. Do you understand me? Are you with me? This has been the ruin of true movements of the Spirit of God within churches for centuries. Now, I'm not saying that we should be utterly unconcerned about what spiritually mature brothers and sisters in Christ think about what's going on in our lives. I'm not saying that. And I'm not talking about condoning or embracing sinful behavior where you just throw it off with the excuse, well, that's just who I am. That's what I am. That's what I do. I'm going to do that. That's sinful. But there is purposeful individual peculiarity for each one of Christ's saints. And we all need to be comfortable with that. And we need to accept one another in light of it. Christ called Philip for a unique purpose. And that purpose, oddly enough, even involved his unique name. His personality, his upbringing, that maybe wasn't the ideal upbringing in the eyes of most other Jewish people in his day. And yet that was still what Christ purposed for him and how Christ intended to use him. Well, it's the same for you and me. 
And we should not be afraid to be who Christ has made us to be. Only then will we find his power working in us and using our uniqueness to spread the kingdom of heaven. So those are some application points as we look at those two disciples. I hope you followed me there. I hope it was a blessing for you to understand that. That you are no longer defined by your old self in the eyes of God. You've been given a new name in Christ and Christ looks upon you in light of that new name. And even in relation to your uniqueness as a person, Christ has a purpose to use you in spreading his kingdom that does not include you becoming someone else before he'll use you, or like someone else, I should say. You don't need to be someone else in order for Christ to use you for the sake of his kingdom. You simply need to be as fully conformed to the way that Christ now sees you as his disciple. And the more you come to him, the more you see him for yourself, the more impact these realities will have on your walk with Christ and your life of discipleship. And so I pray, I ask, I beg you to come to Jesus and to see him and to realize what you are in him and then live in the fullness of that reality in your lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the example that we have of the way in which you deal with your people. You deal with us uniquely. You deal with us individually. Lord, you have purposes for us to fulfill. And those purposes are only going to be fulfilled with power, with enduring conviction and ability as we come near to you and as we see you in light of who you are. Lord, I pray you would give us grace to know the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in greater measure. Would you give us grace to know the power of your word and the impact of your word upon us today and tomorrow and throughout the rest of this week. Lord, in all of our dealings with the people that you bring into our paths, help us be faithful and valiant representatives of the kingdom of heaven. Help us hold fast to who we are in you, Lord. And help us walk in it accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear the benediction from Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. May the Lord give you grace, much, much grace, as you labor and overcome for the glory of his name in the week ahead. May you go in the peace of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.